Would you please join me in a word of prayer? Lord God, thank you for your word. I thank you especially for the Old Testament and all that it teaches us about Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would give us a deep desire in our hearts to declare you as Lord. And I pray that you would help me as I preach. For I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. To see a powerful man in a fit of rage is a frightening thing. A couple weeks ago, Heather and I were kayaking down the Silver Springs River, and as the current carried us around a bend, we could hear a disruption. And then I realized this disruption was a fit of rage by a fairly strong man just letting out all these obscene words and slamming his paddle on his kayak and was facing the side of the shore. He was in a full-on temper tantrum, and his girlfriend or wife was near him, wanted to help, but was distant, and Heather and I kind of silently prayed and paddled past him real quickly, and she said, I, I'm so grateful he was in that kayak because I fear for her what could have happened if he could have moved around. He was out of control, and it was a frightening thing to see. This is not uncommon in our world, and in the text today, we see King Nebuchadnezzar do some things like that. He was a hothead and was prone to fits of rage. Now, Daniel 2, chapter 2 is long. It's 49 verses long, so um, I didn't want to read all of that to you, um, but I am going to jump back a bit and, and set up what happened that led to this dream and its interpretation. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar was having these dreams that were stealing his self-satisfaction. And he had a lot to be satisfied about. He was the ruler of arguably the greatest kingdom up to that point in history. And impressive things were there. If you look up the list of the seven, seven wonders of the world from antiquity, one was the hanging, Babel, the hanging gardens of Babylon. The Jewish historian Josephus writes about this. And Babylon is about... The ancient city is about 50 miles south of Baghdad in Iraq today. So picture that. You've seen the images on TV. It's just dust and desert with the Euphrates River running through it and some greenery on the side of the river, but it was desert. And he built a big kind of fake mountain and a crazy irrigation system to plant all these things and make a green mountain in the middle of a desert. It was impressive. It was one of the seven wonders of the world in those days. That was just one of the many things that were part of this impressive kingdom. And King Nebuchadnezzar had reason to just be at peace with everything, except for these frustrating dreams he kept having, stealing his sleep. He was uh, having these dreams. He was having anxiety with them. He was having sleepless nights. And then he called in all of the wise men of his kingdom to give some understanding and he obviously didn't trust them very much because what he said was, come in here and tell me what the dream was as well as its interpretation, or I'm going to tear you limb from limb and wreck your house down. But if you can tell me, I'll give you great rewards. He set that kind of a situation up, and Nebuchadnezzar distrusted his advisors, which is unfortunately very common with people that come into power. There's the there's the dual horns of pride and paranoia. Look how great I am. I'm the king of Babylon, and who's, who's trying to take me out? There's always fear. Can you trust your advisors? When you have that kind of leadership and that kind of power, who can you really trust? And so they say, well, well king, uh, tell us what the dream was, and then we'll give you the interpretation. And then a the second time, he says, 
you better tell me or I'm going to tear you limb from limb. And the third time, they say, nobody can do this. And he flies off into a fit of rage. And he says, not just you, every one of the wise men, get all of them. Enchanters, wise men, everyone from Babylon, destroy them all. That's massive stress in Babylon in that moment. And if you think of the story of Babylon and the story of Daniel as a narrative, this is history. I believe this actually happened. But the author was crafting a story to point us to certain truths. And the plot comes to the conflict in chapter 2. Each one of these chapters kind of follows like a TV series where there's character development, there's a conflict, and partial resolution at the end of each chapter. And so here's the conflict. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't trust his advisors, and God is giving him these dreams. And it finally blows up in a situation where he says, if you don't tell me my dream, I'm going to destroy all of you. And he's out of control. He's in a fit of rage. Now, this is not the first or last time we'll see this in leadership. If you jump ahead to the birth uh, year of Jesus, King Herod the Great, when he heard from the Magi, other wise men, that a new king was born and was going to succeed him, he ends up killing all of the children born in that area that were under two years of age, figuring if I can't figure out who this king is, I'm just going to wipe out all the potential. That is terrible. And it caused great harm to people. Now, keep in mind that Daniel's writing to Jews that are in exile. And so this chapter gives them great encouragement that their current leader is not their ultimate leader. And I asked you the question as we began, actually Jack asked it, but what qualities do you most admire and most desire in a ruler? Think about that for a minute, because what we're going to get here is a picture of the ideal right next to the less than ideal. Daniel was sent by God to speak truth to power. Now, aside from the divine revelation that God does give to Daniel, there are at least two things about Daniel that are really impressive, that I I personally really like. One is how he displays tact with a rage-prone monarch who's full of himself and very powerful. He says, you've seen an image, and it's got a gold head and then a silver chest, and then a bronze torso, and then iron legs, and then clay mixed with iron for the feet and toes. You are the gold head. And he uses this kind of language to stroke his ego a little bit, and maybe even spare Daniel's own head, because this is dangerous to speak truth to power like that. But I notice also the complete humility that Daniel has. So he He says, no wise man, nobody can give you what you're asking for. And then he said, but there is, in verse 29, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made this known to King Nebuchadnezzar. And then he says, but as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all of the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king. That's verse 30. Daniel is very clear that he in himself does not contain this kind of wisdom. He's called a wise man. He's grouped in with all the, the intelligent ones that were being raised up and were serving the court and whatever. But he's like, I don't have this wisdom in myself, but there is a God in heaven who does. And he will give this so that you understand what is happening and what this means. He displays tact with the king and he has complete humility. Unlike Arioch, who's the, the chief executioner, when, when he brings Daniel into King Nebuchadnezzar, he says, I have found among the exiles one who can give interpretation to your dream. Really? 
Because Daniel went and sought you out and said, why is the king's decree so urgent? Why is he trying to kill everyone? What's, what's going on here? And he shows great tact, but Arioch takes credit for this. I found, among the exiles, I found one who can answer your, your dilemma. He takes credit for what wasn't his, but not Daniel. He's very humble. Now, verse 31 is where we start into what the actual image looks like. So this image is um, so frightening and bright that it probably stayed with King Nebuchadnezzar for a long time. In fact, if you look at your, uh, I don't have one in front of me, but if you look at the image that we put out there uh, of the sermon series, it's on the bulletin. Um, we have a tall statue overlooking the city. That's a picture from actually next week's chapter. Chapter three, I think, this is me guessing here, I think the haunting image from the dream and Daniel's interpretation of it so unsettled Nebuchadnezzar that he tried to fix it by building another statue that was 90 feet tall and was all gold. The very next chapter, see if you're the gold head, but then there's this silver coming after you and bronze. He's, he, I think he tried to correct it in the next chapter, but we'll save that for next, next week. Let me, let me stay on this one for a minute. So the image is that there is a gold head, and it is symbolic of King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. But there are successive kingdoms coming after him. And scholars have debated this quite a bit. The general consensus is that Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar is the gold head. And then after him is Persia, the silver chest and shoulders that was led by King Cyrus the Great. And then after that, we've got the torso that is bronze, and it was most likely Greece and Alexander the Great. And then after that were the iron legs, which were most likely Rome and Octavian, who later became called Augustus, Caesar Augustus. Could be off a little bit. And then everyone speculates on what the mixed feet are and the 10 different toes. It's, it's really not clear. But what's really clear is the stone that is not formed by human hands that comes in and smashes the toes and then the whole thing falls to chaff and blows away and all the kingdoms are gone, it is clear that that is God and his kingdom. For God is the only one that could be in description here, not with human hands. This is a divine kingdom and a divine king coming that will supersede all the kingdoms that have come before. Now, in Daniel's day, much like all the prophetic writings, there is a partial fulfillment. Daniel sat in Babylon for 70 years, and he saw some of those transitions. He saw the end of Babylon and the rise up of Cyrus, um, the Persian. He, he actually witnessed some of this happen in his day. But there was a later fulfillment being pictured that was fulfilled 2,000 years ago, and there's even more fulfillment coming. So there are things in Daniel that I can promise you, however many 10,000, 100,000 years in the future, you will look back and go, Oh, that's what the ten toes are. Makes perfect sense now. I can say that because we read the Old Testament on this side of the cross, and we look at the prophecies about who Jesus would be, and we go, oh, that's what Isaiah meant. Now I get it. But even in their day, the exiles were encouraged. And for us, God's kingdom has arrived. That stone has been hurled at those kingdoms. It has it has happened, but as the scholars call it, it's the already but not yet. It has already arrived, but it is not yet fully consummated. There is still more to come. Now, Jesus one time told a parable about the kingdom, this stone and this new kingdom that would supersede all others, and he said the kingdom of God is like a small mustard seed. And when it is sown into the garden, it's a small seed, but it grows up bigger than all the other plants. It grows up to be even a tree in the garden, and the birds nest in it. What is seemingly in, 
significant and small becomes bigger than the others. Jesus used this and a number of other teachings to explain things about the kingdom of God. And think about this for a minute. At the day of Pentecost, right after Jesus' resurrection, when the Holy Spirit came, there were like 120 followers of Jesus hiding in fear in the upper room. Peter comes out and gives a sermon that's anointed by God, and 3,000 were added to their number that day. And then the church kept growing and growing and growing and growing. This is in the midst of Rome, the iron legs, the iron that breaks all the other stuff. The Christian church has exceeded Rome. Rome is no more. The church keeps growing and expanding like that tree in the garden that now has birds nesting in its branches. It has grown bigger and bigger and bigger. I I found a survey from 2015 from Pew Forum that gave these statistics. Global statistics of religion. I mean, you can find other ones. There are studies out there. This might be off by a a fraction, but it, it said that Christianity is the number one largest religion in the world. 29% of all humans identify with the Christian faith. That's 2.4 billion people on the planet right now, actually five years ago. As of five years ago, almost a third of all humanity served the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Mustard seed growing big. This little stone that breaks this image will grow into a mountain that fills the entire earth. Now, it's fun to speculate about the different kingdoms and to try and prognosticate about who Daniel was pointing to, and I think that's dangerous if you spend more time there than you should. The point is the stone. The point is this other kingdom that is the divine kingdom that is supernatural that will, it it will last forever. In Mark chapter 4, in the parable of the sower, Jesus says to you, the disciples, the secrets of the kingdom have been given. In John 18, when he's being examined by Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. You know, most kings conquer by force. All of the ones in this image, all the ones I've named so far, they conquer by force. Even our own country had a ton of violence in it. Every time there's a new emerging power, it's usually done with force. But you know how this other kingdom, this one not made with human hands, was won? It was won by the king sacrificing himself, by, rather than inflicting violence, taking it on himself. What's so powerful to me is Jesus picks up the theme from Daniel of the son of man and couples it with the theme from Isaiah, the suffering servant in those servant songs. He is the son of man. He is the king of kings and lord of lords, and he's also the suffering servant. And the way that he conquers all the kingdoms is by not taking them over with a worldly power and a display of force, but by laying down his life, defeating sin and death, defeating Satan, defeating all other powers and principalities, and then emerging and winning hearts one after another after another to 29% of the planet right now and counting. The kingdom is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. He's winning hearts one at a time. And his kingdom is wherever his lordship is received. So his kingdom might be right in the midst of your life. He says you can't look and go, there it is, or it's over here. It's, it's in the midst of you. The gospel reading we read today was about Peter declaring that Jesus is the, the anointed one, the, the Messiah, the Christ. He's the one that was prophesied. And I use it every time I do a newcomer's lunch. I have a newcomer's lunch today, and I usually refer to that because 
the church, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's the only institution that has that kind of a promise. It will exceed every kingdom, every corporation, every earthly group or affiliation or allegiance. It will exceed all of those. And you know, I have to wonder, and I'll let you speculate on this too. When Jesus renamed Peter, Peter, which means rock, it sounds like the Cephas, it sounds like the Greek word rock, he, he named him rock. I have to wonder if the son of man in his mind was thinking of Daniel, was thinking of this image. And he said, and you, Peter, are the rock, and I will build my church on you, and the gates of hell will not prevail. The little stone that was thrown at the image that broke its feet and then caused the whole thing to come down was that Jesus using Peter and then Jesus building his church on that, on the apostles, on that first sermon at Pentecost when it started. You know, the message of Jesus was, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. So he came and effectively stuck a foreign flag into dirt and said, my kingdom is now here. And he's been taking back territory one after another, not with violence or force, but with love, with kindness, with a self-sacrificing display of the kind of leadership that I think we all really want. You know, this, this chapter is so interesting because the enchanters come to a declaration that is actually a kind of a sideways declaration of worship. When, when their third request is met with fury and Nebuchadnezzar loses it and goes into a fit of rage and says, kill all of the wise men, they say, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And then Daniel knows the God, the true God, and he is given the revelation of this vision, and he breaks out into praise. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. And this whole thing moves to the last bit. We didn't read this either. But after the dream is explained and its interpretation is explained, it says this, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. Now, Daniel was not receiving worship there. He was actually a fulfillment of one of the Psalms that said, Gentile kings will bow down before you. This was happening because God was displaying his strength and power. Now, what do we do with this? Well, one, I don't want you to underestimate the kingdom of God. Don't underestimate it. God is building it. It is growing. It's moving. It's spreading. It's spreading in places where it's illegal to be a Christian right now. It's spreading in places where persecution happens. In fact, when you persecute the church, it actually grows historically. So don't underestimate it. Secondly, serve where you can. Serve the current earthly leadership where you can and how you can. Verse 49 is interesting. It says, Daniel made a request of the king. This is after the king bowed down. And he, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Even after this whole exchange, even after knowing that a, a, a greater kingdom is coming, Daniel submitted himself to serve King Nebuchadnezzar, to remain at court, to work for the blessing and betterment of Babylon, trusting that God would then bless the exiles if the country into which they were exiled was blessed. That's instructive for us to serve in our own situation. And I thirdly want to say, you know, 
First, don't underestimate God's kingdom. Second, serve this kingdom or your kingdom where you can, the earthly kingdoms. And then third, guard your heart from too much hope in worldly kingdoms, especially in election time. Say your prayers, vote your conscience, do your duty as a citizen, exercise that right that we have in this country. Don't put your hope ultimately, though, in it, on either side, whatever it is. You know, when I think about the answer to my own question this morning, what, is, what are the ideal traits of a ruler that I would want to have over me? Well, I think of the term benevolent dictator. Actually, I want a benevolent ruler, someone who is loving, good, and cares about me, but I want someone who has the power to implement the love and care and concern for me. So I want love, I want power, and I want it to last forever. When I think about a ruler, I want those three things. And guess what? In this vision that King Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, we have that. We have a God who loves us. He is all-powerful, and his kingdom will remain forever. So we're going to respond. I'm going to say a prayer, and I'm going to invite Rob and the team to come up to their instruments. We're going to um, respond to this with a song about crowning Jesus as our King and Lord, our ultimate God, of worshiping him, placing our highest allegiance there. So if you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord, I want to invite you during this song to give him your heart, to make him your King, to pay homage to him, to recognize how great he is and how much he loves you. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are, you're amazing. The way that you laid down your life for us, your love for us, the way you taught, were kind, or patient, are so powerful, Lord. We praise you and worship you this morning. We pray that you would fill us afresh with your presence, your spirit. I ask this in your holy name. Amen.